This is one of Deep State Radio's briefs and debriefs. Hello and welcome to another episode of National Security Magazine. This is David Rothkopf. I'm your host and I'm joined today by Jake Sullivan, who uh, was a senior policy advisor on the Hillary Clinton campaign, who held senior positions in the Obama administration, both in the White House and the State Department, uh, and who is one of the leading foreign policy and national security thinkers in the Democratic Party. Uh, and of course, we are looking ahead towards 2020. Uh, we've got 25-ish Democratic candidates kind of uh, competing with one another. And thus far, I haven't heard a lot about foreign policy in the course of the campaign. Uh, meanwhile, the world has been, you know, sort of going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, you know, North Korea, worse than it was. Uh, China, trade dispute, bit of problem there. Uh, world economy waiting, worried. Uh, uh, Chinese troops massed in Shenzhen, uh, violence in Hong Kong. Uh, uh, repression in Xinjiang province, India and Pakistan on the verge of war in in, in Kashmir, uh, JCPOA, which Jake was intimately involved with, having uh, no longer being honored by the United States, uh, tensions rising in the Persian Gulf, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty uh, with Russia uh, no longer being honored on either side, even though it was a kind of a pillar of post-war stability. England or the UK on the verge of pulling out of the EU and in some political chaos, the EU facing its own problems. And of course, you know, over all of these, perhaps global warming, the Amazon being destroyed under Bolsonaro, fires in the Arctic, um, and, uh, you know, Greenland melting. And uh, so I thought, you know, it'd be a good chance to talk to Jake about where we might see the next administration um, pick up. Did I did I leave anything out there on my list, Jake? Uh, only the need for all of us to go knock off and get a drink right now after listening <laughs> to that rundown. <laughs> I, I mean, that is quite a catalog, a totally accurate, uh, deeply sobering catalog of the myriad crises, um, some created by circumstance, but some totally self-inflicted by the policies of this administration. And it's global in scope. It crosses every region, every functional area imaginable. And any one of these things alone uh, could present a, uh, an incredibly devastating outcome. Uh, when you take the totality of them, it really points to a deeply destabilized world. And we have commander in chief right now uh, who along with this team is just utterly not up to the task. So thank you for depressing me on this sunny afternoon. Well, I, I, know, I bet you knew you could count on me to do that, but you, you know, um, there's an old saying, be careful what you wish for. There've been plenty of people in the world for the past 75 years who've been saying things like, gee, I wish the United States wouldn't mess everything up. Gee, I wish the United States wouldn't behave like it was the um, global police force. Gee, I wish, you know, you know we, could, we could take care of things for ourselves. And all of a sudden, that's exactly what they're getting. You know, the United States has essentially pulled back. Uh, or 
to the extent to which it's been involved, it's exacerbated the problems. And really, whether you're talking about North Korea, China trade, uh, Trump giving the uh, Chinese government a pass to do what they need to do in Hong Kong, Trump exacerbating the problems between India and Pakistan with a foolish lie, um, Trump and JCPOA, Trump and INF, Trump supporting Brexit, Trump attacking Germany with an ambassador to tax the German government on an almost daily basis, Trump actually reversing um, uh, most of our environmental laws and pulling us out of the Paris Accord. You know, but, you know, part of the problem is that we're not, you know, playing the role we've played in the past. Part of the problem is we're making it worse. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. When I served in government, I would often remark that when we met with foreign government officials, they'd say two things at once. First, you guys are doing a whole bunch of terrible things, you Americans. And second, you're not doing enough. It sort of reminded me of the old Woody Allen joke about food here being terrible, but such small portions. Um, that, that, that was kind of the description of American foreign policy. And when you look at what has undergirded the approach the United States has taken in the world through Democratic and Republican presidents alike over the past 70 years, um, and you see what Trump has done to basically kick all of the, uh, you know, the legs out from that stool, it now is becoming apparent that as imperfect as America's relationship to international institutions was, a total disdain for international institutions has put us in a worse place. As imperfect as America's commitment to any kind of sense of human rights, human dignity, democracy, as, as guiding universal principles was over the past 70 years, completely turning our back on that has made things much worse. As imperfect as our both our contributions to and what we were getting out of alliances was over the past 70 years, that's all gotten worse. So, you know, an imperfect but more steady United States that at least strives for a sense of positive some outcomes, a belief in some kind of core principles, a view that international cooperation can help solve big problems. The absence of that United States as flawed warts and all as it was, um, I think is a huge contributor to the circumstances we find ourselves in now, because not only is the United States acting as a great disruptor and destabilizer, but it's also modeling behavior that other bad actors around the world are picking up on and feeling that they've now got a green light to do whatever they want to do, whether it's the literal green light that Donald Trump sent to the Chinese authorities about Hong Kong, or it's the language he uses about fake news and the like that's been picked up by dictators from the Philippines to Turkey, or it's his view that we should be engaged in a new nuclear arms race, which has only aided and abetted the Russians, the Indians, and the Pakistanis. So I do think when you think about who is currently contributing the most to global instability, you'd have to put the United States at or right near the top of that list. And, and that's a depressing fact for someone like myself and someone like you who believe that for all of our shortcomings, flaws and failures, the United States can be, uh, you know, net net a force for good in the world. And we are not acting that way now. Yeah, you know, I, I I always get a bit of a headache or worse when people start talking about, you know, Trump doctrines, because I don't think Trump has any doctrines. I think he tends to, 
you know, serve himself and do so in the moment and is never very strategic and is almost always um, uh, impulse driven. But if you're looking for one, you know, sort of consistent pattern, it's that the president of the United States has dismantled uh, or sought to dismantle the institutions and uh, alliances uh, that have sort of underpinned the U.S. worldview for 75 years. And so whether it was pulling out of TPP or pulling out of the Paris Accords or taking a shot at NATO or pulling out of the INF Treaty or pulling out of JCPOA or, um, you know, getting into fights with, you know, Canada of all people, I mean, you know, you know, of all countries, um, uh, you know, places that we very, very seldom have ever had disputes before. He's just sort of, you know, put the torch to all of that. And I think one of the things that it's done is it's revealed how beneficial that worldview was and those institutions were. And, you know, right. you and I have had conversations before where we say, well, you know, the WTO has got a problem. The UN has a problem. The uh, uh, uh NPT is, you know, needs to be upgraded, et cetera. But, but, you know, quite, you know, setting all that aside, we're learning the value of actually having an international order and having some sort of multilateral cooperation and bringing together a burden sharing and dealing with problems in the global commons. And, and, you know, maybe that'll be helpful for a new president. Do you, do you think, do you think we can sort of snap back from all of this on January 20, whatever, 2021? Well, the bad news is that everything about Donald Trump, uh, and particular his pedigree as a real estate dealmaker, screams zero sum. He literally cannot contemplate the idea that the United States could be better off, safer, and stronger if someone else is better off, safer, and stronger. Anyone else's gain from his perspective is a loss for the United States. It's someone screwing us. It's someone laughing at us, whether it's an ally like Germany or Canada, uh, you know, or if, you know, if he had been president back at the end of the Second World War, if it was a vanquished foe like Germany or Japan, uh, who we very wisely invested in rebuilding to our benefit as well as theirs. He literally cannot contemplate that. And I think if he's elected to a second term, the basic blind spot around any notion of positive sum interaction and coordination, cooperation with the rest of the world will only exacerbate the instability and the inability to deal with the great global challenges that we face from climate change to nuclear proliferation to trade. The good news is uh, that I actually don't believe that this is a a place in which he is reflecting a deeply held view of the American people, the American electorate. You, you read a lot about how Trump has tapped into some deep vein of um, thinking around foreign policy among the American people. I just don't entirely buy it. If you look at any credible survey of American attitudes towards foreign policy, they, they fundamentally reflect the kind of common sense that it's better to have more friends and fewer enemies, that allies are an asset, not a liability, that cooperating on issues like climate change when we're 15% of the problem and the rest of the world is 85% of the problem is a pretty important <laughs> undertaking for, uh, for the United States. And so I believe that there is fertile ground for a future president to plow with the American people 
on an enlightened engagement with the world that is based on the idea of rallying cooperation to solve big problems, reinvesting in alliances, reinvesting in the kind of core American values of human rights and human dignity. I think that is all possible as long as the next president doesn't just say, we're going back to do things exactly how we did them before. They've got to have that core vision applied to a new construct, a new world, a changing global landscape. And so the discipline of holding on to age-old principles, but applying them to a new uh, world out there, that is how we're going to be successful. Because if the story is just turn back the clock, I don't think the American people are up for that. And frankly, I don't think the problems that we're dealing with right now are susceptible to that. So that's, that's the trick. That's what whoever the standard bearer for the Democrats is going to have to be able to convey, and then if they win, be able to carry out. I totally agree with you, of course, um, largely because you're right. But, you know, let's, you know, sort of look at at where we stand now with Democratic candidates um, for president. And, you know, one of the things that strikes me, a lot of people worried, oh, there'd be all this fighting and stuff. There's actually, on on a host of issues, across 25 candidates, there's a lot of agreement, right? There's yeah. a general agreement that we need to improve healthcare and and extend it to everybody, fight climate change and fight the climate crisis, do something sensible in terms of gun reform, uh, undo Trump tax cuts that benefited the 1% in companies and start trying to deal with the problem of inequality in America, start trying to fix our schools, start trying to create jobs. You know, I make that, you know, that, that I could sort of tweak that, but that applies to almost everybody. And we can have a little bit of a debate about whether you call one thing Medicare for all and, you know, your universal health care, you know, Obamacare plus, but basically there is a core. And if you ask somebody, what does a Democrat believe? They say they believe that. But if you ask them, what is a democratic foreign policy? What do Democrats believe? How is a democratic foreign policy different from a Donald Trump foreign policy. I don't think we've even had that conversation yet, but let's start it. How would you answer that question? Well, here too, I actually think your astute observation about convergence on domestic policy across the candidates with, with relatively marginal differences on healthcare or tax policy or antitrust policy or climate policy, that convergence story applies in the foreign policy uh, arena as well. And so that your candidates out on the left, your Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warrens, are giving speeches and writing articles about, number one, the importance of allies as a foundation for American engagement in the world. Number two, a notion of reinvigorating democracy, uh, particularly with the uh, continued advance of authoritarianism and kleptocracy in many parts of the world. Uh, number three, the critical, the centrality of reengaging in international institutions that deal with problems that no one country can deal with on their own, whether it's the Iran nuclear deal or the Paris Climate Agreement or a future arms control agreement with Russia, like extending New START and, and moving beyond it. So in those, on those major pillars, alliances, values, international institutions, the Uh, the significant threat coming from authoritarian capitalism. You can hear Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg give foreign policy speeches, talk about corruption as a national security weapon, talk about 
new transnational threats from climate and technology. And you can read Warren and Sanders and see a lot of rhyming uh, across those fronts. Now, differences in emphasis, there's differences um, in the way that the candidates approach rhetoric and framing, but the agenda, the core agenda, I think, has certain common features to it. And a lot of that is because Donald Trump has acted as a unifying force for democratic foreign policy. And I think his absence would have led to much deeper debates among the candidates that, than you're likely to see. One, one issue I didn't mention, which I think will be a significant focus of the next president, will be thinking about how to rebalance the military and diplomatic engagement in the Middle East with an end to the forever wars, a reduction in our overall military footprint, an increase in our diplomatic engagement and civilian power. And similarly, whether it's Joe Biden uh, or it's Cory Booker or it's Kamala Harris or it's Elizabeth Warren, Pete, Bernie, they're all in roughly the same place on that critical set of issues, um, which is different from how even the Democrats have been going back 10, 15 years. So part of the reason you don't hear more in this primary about foreign policy, well, part of it is just because it doesn't tend to play the role it should play in, in Democratic primaries. But part of it is because no candidate is kind of looking that as an area where they can find a really sharp distinction to draw because those truly sharp distinctions, from my perspective, don't really exist. So in 100 days after whomever is elected the next president of the United States, let's assume for a moment that Trump loses because we kind of know what would happen if he wins. And, and, and frankly, I don't want to think about it right now. But let's, Although let's... I will say one thing, David, if he wins, it, I don't think it'll just be linear. A president in a second term is like they were in their first term when it comes to foreign policy, only more so. And so, you know, just as it was, President Obama finished out the Iran nuclear deal, the Paris Climate Agreement, the opening to Cuba, among other foreign policy initiatives in his second term, that was the culmination of years of work. And the mirror negative opposite, I think you could see from Trump, like going all the way on NATO or the WTO, um, you know, a, an even more extreme and aggressive and damaging trade war with China and so forth. So it, I think it's important for people to understand that the stakes are not just kind of, it's not one X to two X, one term to two terms. It's sort of one X to 10 X or a hundred X. Um, but you were going a different direction to say, let's, let's say a Democrat wins. That's no, no, right. I, I, I think, I it's, think. It's, it's, it's important to underscore that. No, no, uh, I think it's that. important. And I, I also think there's some things where four more years of Trump will, you know, um, produce irrevocable damage. You know, there, there are some right. areas where you can snap back, but when species become extinct, when, you know, ice caps disappear, uh, we can't bring them back really. And, 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 Certainly, environmental policy will take us there. And certainly, when you give the green light to dictators uh, and autocrats to abuse their populations, um, and that includes killing people or imprisoning them, destroying their lives, waging wars on their neighbors, um, you know, those, those lives can't be brought back and those, the, the damage there can't be undone. So you're absolutely, you're absolutely right there. But, you know, it, I, I just think it's important to kind of envision, particularly, you know, I talk to a lot of foreign leaders and and uh, or foreign experts and and, you know, they're like, well, you know, 
you know, everything will be fine the day after Trump leaves. And I'm like, well, no, some things can snap back. I, for example, I think any Democratic president will try to get back into the JCPOA and restore it. I think, you know, any Democratic president will very early on reestablish faith in NATO, the priority of NATO, reconnection with our allies, et cetera. You know, I think there's certain certain areas like that. Um, I, I think any Democratic president is likely to um, be much tougher on some of the world's autocrats than they're accustomed to under Trump and to send a message that that's going to be the case. But what else, you know, in the in a, in a, in a kind of first hundred days, first year can happen. And what might not? I mean, I'll, I'll throw one out to you just before you get into this. But, you know, for example, I, I think there is a consensus among many in the Democratic Party that whether he's handled it well or not is is one thing. But Trump's right to go after China on, on trade, and we're going to have to find a way to do that. So mm-hmm. I just, you know, Play it out in your mind. Well, I'll I'll lay out a couple of things that actually are keeping me up at night as I think about a future Democratic administration, where it's easy to have the right basic rhetorical and conceptual framing, but it's harder to execute a policy. So I'll start where you finished your question, which is on how to deal with the economic and technological challenge of China. So Trump's answer is a unilateral trade war where American farmers and American families bear all the costs and the rest of the world sort of stands by and sees it play out. The Democrats respond by saying the right way to deal with China is to rally the rest of the world, to write the rules of the road, to mobilize half to two thirds of the world's GDP, to exercise much greater leverage on China than we can do by ourselves. That's all right. But that starts to sound quite a bit like TPP and the transatlantic trade agreement that the Obama administration was negotiating, which no Democrat wants to just embrace lock, stock and barrel. So the question is, what does multilateral trade strategy look like with our friends and like-minded nations in both Asia and Europe? that doesn't fall into the political and substantive traps of the TPP but that can pick up momentum early in a president's term. And, and I don't think you're going to hear satisfying answers to this on the campaign trail because of the nature of the trade issue in, a, in both a primary and a general election. But I do think a president will immediately be, a new president will be immediately faced with the question of how to handle this, of how to put together a coalition of like-minded countries around a set of rules on issues from currency to state-owned enterprises to intellectual property to technology uh, in both its economic and national security applications. And no Democrat to me has a a totally clear answer on that. That's one. Second, um, directionally, every Democrat, as I mentioned before, is in favor of reducing our military footprint in the Middle East. Totally agree with that. But, but, exactly how do you structure a long-term counterterrorism mission with the right balance between the civilian tools and the military tools? And, and Democrats, I think, are directionally right on this, but haven't really nailed down what the answer is for a sustainable presence across every dimension of American power in the, in the broader Middle East. The third issue on Iran, um, yes, 
with respect to returning to the JCPOA, but every Democrat has also spoken about the need to address additional issues above and beyond the, the four corners of the agreement. How do you get into a negotiation with Iran and the, the rest of the major world powers? Uh, what items are on the table? What items aren't? I think we have work to do to figure that out. And that raises maybe the biggest question of all, which is having pulled out of all these different agreements, having elected Donald Trump in 2016, what is the long-term damage on a new president being able to go look other leaders in the eye and say, you can count on America's word. We're signing up to this. Join us. Join us in extending and strengthening the Paris Climate Agreement. Join us in a follow-on agreement to the JCPOA. Join us in uh, something on strategic stability with Russia. Join us on a, some kind of arrangement around rules of the road on the economy. Other countries may end up saying, well, we want to wait a little while before we decide, you know, things really actually um, gotten back on track in the United States. And just figuring out how to be straight with people that, look, politics is politics, democracy is democracy, things can change over four years, eight years, 12 years, but yet nonetheless, bring the world along, have the United States return to a position where its word can be counted on. That's a kind of larger cloud hanging over the totality of U.S. foreign policy the day after Trump leaves office. Do you see any areas where there are divisions between the Democratic candidates on major issues of foreign policy? I mean, so, um, an example might be that some seem a little bit more in the um, America first school, and I wouldn't use those words, but a little bit more in the isolationist or not, 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 not eager to get involved camp. Others are a little bit more activist. Um, some, frankly, are pretty undeveloped in their thinking on this. Uh, and I'm just wondering, are there any fault lines in the Democratic discussion on this? I'm struggling for fault lines, like genuine fault lines. Um, differences in broader perspective or worldview. Yeah, I'm struggling. I mean, I think in the trade space, if you look at Senator Warren's proposals uh, and you compare them with what, for example, Vice President Biden has said on the subject of trade, there probably are some differences there. But broadly, directionally, they're not so far off. And each is essentially committed to a priority of investing in the United States and our sources of national strength which I don't regard as an America first strategy. I regard that as setting the U.S. to effectively compete and, and kind of shape elements of the global order going forward, investing in our innovation base, our people, our infrastructure, and so forth. But otherwise, it's hard to think, just running the thought experiment of if we had 10 minutes on a debate stage and we really wanted to draw out a philosophical debate among the candidates on foreign policy, what issue would truly separate them? The, the most heat that was created on foreign policy in the last debate was between Senator Warren and Governor Bullock on the no first use policy. And uh, honestly, it didn't amount to <laughs> much of a debate. Um, so th th there may be specific issues like that, which are not insignificant. But on the big questions, it feels like there's a lot more commonality among the candidates than there are differences. I don't know. Have you, do, have you noticed a, a 
big area where you feel that um, there are real differences among the candidates? No, not really. Um, of course, you've left out the Tulsi Gabbard Syria position. Okay, fair enough. You're right. Yep. Um, Tulsi, but, Tulsi has a whole different view. You're you're right. Um, she's she's in a class by herself when it comes to a whole range of these issues, including the threat Russia poses to our democracy, Assad, uh, and so forth. But um, I bet, you no know, I think I, I think you know there's some issues that are easy. You know, NATO. You know. Uh, uh, standing up for human rights a little bit more, um, uh, uh, fighting the climate crisis, um, uh, uh, trying to restore a sense of arms control agreements and international order. Those things, I think, are kind of easy and kind of broadly agreed to. I do think there's one area, sort of the traditional dividing line between moderate Democrats and more progressive Democrats, and that is to what extent do perceived corporate interests drive your international economic policy versus to what extent yeah. do the interests of the people provide drive your international economic policies. And, you know, I saw a debate, as you mentioned, around Elizabeth Warren's trade policy proposals, which candidly, and I was a trade official in the Clinton administration, I looked at them and I thought, you know, she's trying to fix some of the problems that that, yeah. that occurred because we were overbalanced in one direction. And I think that's healthy. Um, I, you know, I listen to Vice President Biden and, you know, I get, I get a little bit of a deja vu kind of feeling and a, a sense that the, the, we might take the, the more standard approach. And I, I think Bernie is way, be, way, way out beyond where Elizabeth Warren is. So I, I think that may be a dividing line. But, I, but beyond that, I you don't know, know, it's interesting, although I think the center of gravity on this has shifted in the last several years. Um, and, you know, a lot of the architects of the trade policies of the 1990s and the 2000s themselves recognize, as, as you just did, uh, that there was too much emphasis placed on opening markets abroad to make them safe for corporate investment and not enough emphasis on jobs and wages in the U.S., and I think a major touchstone of the vice president's message on these issues um, uh, is going to revolve around this basic distinction. But, you know, a trade policy that's about bank branches for J.P. Morgan in China, you know, financial market reform in China um, is not a trade policy that has its priorities right. It should instead be thinking about this kind of core question of jobs and wages in the United States. So. And that debate began in 2016, maybe even before, uh, but really began in earnest then. And now I feel like the entire center of gravity of the conversation has shifted. So I think there will be differences at the margins on this issue, but I don't think philosophically anyone would disagree with the proposition that there needs to be a reweighting of priorities in, in U.S. international economic policy. I thought what you were going to say, where I do, when you said the, the sort of traditional divide between moderates and the progressive left is on the question of humanitarian intervention. I think that's an interesting one um, because, uh, you know, the country's appetite, the party's appetite for further military intervention in the Middle East is at an all time low. But, you know, philosophically, I don't know that any of the candidates have really been pushed on the question of under what circumstances they would use U.S. military force for purposes other than, say, pure self-defense or defense of national security interests. 
Um, but that may be a place where, where there's a generational difference. There's a kind of, you know, those who are steeped in the nineties and before have a kind of lean on this, that the more newcomers to the question don't, uh, but that just hasn't really been tested and would only be tested kind of in the hypothetical in this campaign. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I think there is a generation that's sort of shuffling off the stage that was defined largely um, by Vietnam War. I think there's a generation that was defined by the end of the Cold War and and beginning of problems in the Middle East, and another that's sort of post 9-11. And in the post 9-11 generation, um, because the fiasco that Iraq was, I, you know, people in both parties have lost the appetite for intervention. I do think it's kind of interesting, by the way, and I'll just throw this out there, and we only have a few minutes to go, but th- th- there is a giant, you know, sort of elephant in the room issue on on U.S. foreign policy that nobody will discuss, and that is that we spend $700 billion a year on defense. And there's no reason on earth why we should spend $700 billion a year on defense, but nobody dares to say it. And, you know, aggressive, progressive Democrats will say, well, let's cut 5%. And, you know, pro-growth in, in you know, defense uh, Republicans will say, let's increase it 5%. But nobody will say, gee, you know, all the technologies of warfare have changed. The nature of our conflicts has changed. Um, our force structure should change. Um, and let's, you know, go back to the drawing board because maybe we shouldn't be spending two, three, four times, um, that, you know, that of, of, you know, our nearest rivals or 10 times of our nearest rivals. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's kind of a curious thing. I, I, I think it's kind of the third well, rail in foreign policy discussion. Yeah, you know, what's interesting, I think this is what happens when you, as a country, disinvest in basic research uh, and in your sort of civilian innovation base and and the decline in the percentage of uh, U.S. dollars going towards basic R&D as a percentage of GDP over the last 30 years has been very well documented, especially compared with some of our competitors like China even as the defense budget has gone up, sometimes by eye-popping increments. I mean, just in the, in the Trump administration, we've added tens of billions of dollars a year to the defense budget, almost like as an afterthought, when people are arguing that programs like universal pre-K are you know, socialistic dreams because they're so expensive, when they cost a fraction of that over a, you know, over a 10 year period. Um, so, so we've had this massive increase in defense spending while we've disinvested in basic R and D. And the reason I think that's relevant is because even progressive Democrats are somewhat, um, kind of, uh, I don't want to say cowed cause that sounds negative. They're, they're stopped short in really robust and relentless criticism of the size of the defense budget by the argument which says this is what accounts for America's industrial policy. This is where we're actually putting money into innovation and good paying middle class jobs and, you know, manufacturing in a lot of key states. 
so that you can get Sherrod Brown and Rob Portman standing together to protect the Lima tank plant in Lima, Ohio. You can get Bernie Sanders arguing for the F-35 components that are built in Vermont and so forth. Um, and you even get progressive economists saying, look, we're not in a position really to make massive cuts to the defense budget because this isn't pure guns versus butter. This is actually federal government dollars that are not only in, invested in national security, but are you know, keeping a kind of industrial base going uh, that supplies some degree of growth and jobs for um, working class people across the country. So I've really tried to dig into this issue and think, how do we totally restructure the defense budget? How do we think about a broader national security budget that reallocates our dollars in ways that make a lot more sense, given the nature of technology, of diplomacy, of development in the modern world? And it just becomes a Gordian not. Um, so that's part of the explanation for why candidates don't touch it as much as just the kind of simple argument that, oh man, it's, it's a political liability. It's that there are very difficult trade-offs you immediately have to contend with when you start talking about big cuts. And that's, that's what happens when you get to the position that we've gotten to. And it, I think it'll take us years to get out of this. Um, yeah, so although, although I have speaking, to... yeah, no, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, broadly speaking, we are absolutely misspending and misallocating massive sums of money on legacy systems and ways of war fighting that simply make no sense in the modern era. And no one is being held accountable for that. And it's and, and in fact, we're just throwing more money at it. Uh, and yeah, and that's, well, that, that's an, an appalling fact. Yeah. No, but, you know, the interesting thing is that the argument that you just made in 2019 is the argument that engine Charlie Wilson was making as Secretary of Defense in the 1950s. You know, the country had come out of the Depression, gone into the Second World War, won the Second World War, and exited the war as, you know, as, as owning half of all world trade and being prosperous. And the Eisenhower administrations, you know, said, if we cut back on our defense spending, the economy will collapse. And we we can't do that. You know, we've we've got to find new ways to invest it. Now, Eisenhower was smart enough to say, you know, a defense priority is building highways. Right? Yeah, exactly. You know, no, you know, no, so and I don't want to be associated with the argument that you cut defense and the economy collapses. I'm I'm making a kind of more targeted argument, which is if you are an elected representative or you're somebody who cares about a community or constituency you can see how the way that we're investing our dollars now have gotten so weighted in a defense that we've built up these really resilient vested interests, not just on in one political party, but in both. And not just for purely venal reasons, but for reasons that one can understand. You know, you don't want the tank plant to close in a hard hit town. Um, so it, for me, this is more a story of inertia and momentum than it is about how we must do it this way or, you know, all things will be wrong. And to deal with that kind of inertia and momentum, we are going to have to redefine what we mean by national security and then systematically reallocate resources accordingly. And I think actually the Eisenhower experience is, is one that, that Democratic candidates should be taking a hard look at. Yeah, on, on, several, on several levels. Okay, we, we, we only got a minute or two left, but I have to ask you one last question. Um, you know, I remember going through the campaign and talking to you during the campaign and listening to you during the last campaign, 2016, you were working with Hillary Clinton. And all of a sudden we started getting this kind of information that the Russians were interfering in the campaign. And, you know, literally nobody in the country on a public basis was sort of 
sounding the alarm about the potential consequences um, more uh, vehemently than you were. Maybe, you know, Hillary Clinton, but, but you guys were out there. And we've now gone through a cycle. There's been some investigation. It has been truncated in some interesting ways. Um, uh, but it's been conducted in a way in a heat fraught political atmosphere so that people sort of develop fatigue over this issue. Um, and we now may be entering a new period of investigation with, you know, you know, impeachment inquiry. But I, I had a conversation on the previous issue uh, edition of National Security Magazine with uh, Jim Clapper. And, you know, he has also been outspoken on this issue. And he said, look, I think in 2020, we're not just going to get the Russians, who we are deliberately not doing everything we can to stop, but we're going to get the Chinese and the Iranians and maybe the North Koreans all interfering in our election. Because the clear signal has been delivered that you can do it, that you can get away with it. Indeed, you can even collaborate with a political campaign and provided you're not signing a document or you know, the masterminds are not appearing in a room at the same time, you can even get away with that. And the president has even invited it. Um, and so, you know, this is a national security issue. This is not just an issue about, you know, um, elections uh, or politics. And I'm just wondering, as you view where we are right now, uh, you know, 15 months out from the next election, uh, given everything that we've been through, where do you, you know, wh where do you come? I'm kind of surprised we are where we are. I, I, I really have got to say, I think largely the Russians and Donald Trump thus far have gotten away with one of the crimes of the century. Um, and I'm not just saying that in a political sense. We, we know, you know, just take the first part of the Mueller report. We know what happened. Um, and, and, and I just think we're inviting further problems and insecurity. And my final point on this is, you know, the last time around, the Russians did what was necessary or they thought was necessary to help the Trump campaign. And we can debate how much help they gave. But this next time around, all they would have to do is raise questions about a few outcomes in the event of his loss. And it would create a firestorm of division, as he said, this is an illegitimate election. Right. I have become totally beaten down on this issue, I confess. Um, and I confess that without pride. It, it began when we were, as you said, sounding the alarm during the election, and everybody looked at us like we were wearing tinfoil hats. Uh, it continued in the months after when this issue got deeply politicized and when Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell essentially doubled down on a strategy of sticking their heads in the sand and saying, we're not really going to do anything about this. The commander in chief kind of refusing to mobilize the national security apparatus of the United States to deal with it and the Senate majority leader refusing to move a simple piece of legislation that would provide states with the ability to defend themselves against exactly the kind of operation you're talking about, the probing of election rolls and systems that could lead to the Russians one day saying, oh, you know, there was some irregularity here, something got screwed up, this is an illegitimate election. So we are in uh, a moment when we can kind of see the threat coming at us. 
And it reminds me of the scene in Austin Powers, the first Austin Powers, where there's a guy on a steamroller, you know, a hundred yards away from another guy and the guy, the, the guy standing there just shouting no, and it's all moving in total slow motion. People should Google this image because I can't describe it evocatively enough, but it's like, this is the perfect image for what's happening. It's this slow moving steamroller about to just roll over the crown jewels of our democracy, our presidential elections. And we are doing nothing to stop it except just standing there with some of us shouting, no, no, stop, stop. And as long as you have the reins of government held by somebody whose self-interest is in not just allowing this, but promoting it, and you've got the Senate in the hands of someone who is enabling the president this way, there's not a lot we can do. And, and so um, I hate to sit here and admire the problem or complain about the problem. I just, I am weary um, at what should be a unifying and galvanizing issue and instead is seen as just a tool of further partisan gain and advantage. I think it's a terrible thing for our democracy. I think it says terrible things about some of our leaders. And I can only hope that it, the scenario you just painted, which is a very plausible scenario, does not come to pass. But hope is not a plan. And uh, unfortunately, that's what we're left with now. Uh, even as you say it, I think. You know, imagine that they pulled that up. Um, it, it's not just that we would be divided and in chaos in the United States. But after that, and after the Brexit referendum, and after elections in France and some other places, sooner or later, people are going to start saying, I'm not sure I can trust democracies. I'm not sure I can trust exactly. elections. Exactly. Which is a big part of the long-term project here. It's not just to discredit or divide the United States. It's discredit an entire political model um, to relieve pressure on autocrats at home in Moscow, in Beijing, in Tehran, in Pyongyang, and wherever. And uh, you know, right now, aiding and abetting that overall strategy is the current occupant of the Oval Office. Well, actively because it suits him, um, and because he has you know, no, no morality at all. But in any event, look, this has been a great conversation. We've taken too much of your time. I, I, I'm grateful for you taking some time out in the middle of the summer and hope that you will come back periodically as we go, you know, go through and up to the election um, to provide us with these kind of insights. Um, and, you know, in the, in the meantime, I hope you find a little bit of time to relax and enjoy the rest of the summer. Well, I'm headed to a bar now after, um, <laughs> After your opening tour de force, I've got to. Uh, so yeah. I look forward to coming back on at some point soon. Uh, okay. Well, good luck at the bar. Um, right, hydrate is very important. All right. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Jake. Thank you, everybody, for tuning into this issue of National Security um, Magazine. If you want more, go to the DSRnetwork.com. Listen to DSR, DSR Live. Uh, unredacted podcast, uh, uh, look at the other content we've got and sign up, become a member and uh, join the DSR network and support more conversations like this one or the one that we recently had with General Clapper, which we think are unique and a great way for people who care about foreign policy and national security to stay up to date. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with 
Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.